everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. Today on the show, we have an interview with Stephen Kavalkovich. He is a mental health advocate, um, former paramedic. He's the host of the Rescue the Rescuer podcast and is also the CEO of Rescue Consulting, LLC. Steve was a 9-11 responder. Uh, he was also a former paramedic, as I said, and he now has devoted his life to talking about mental health care and addiction amongst first responders. It's a really great interview. I'm really happy that he had a chance to come on to the show and talk to me for a little while. So stick around, listen up, let me know what you guys think about it, and we'll talk to you after the interview. All right, everybody. On the line with me today, I have Stephen Kavalkovich. Stephen is the host of the new Rescue the Rescuer podcast. He's also the CEO of Rescued Consulting, LLC. He is a uh, strong advocate for mental health and addiction services, and he has a background in EMS. So, Stephen, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, man, it's a pleasure to be here, man. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm excited to talk to you today. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Um, you and I have talked a little bit off the air about your background and like that, but for people that aren't familiar with your story or your background, just tell us a little bit of why you started Rescued Consulting, what your background is, and uh, okay. the, the events in your life that kind of led you up to this point. Well, all right, so to give you like the, uh, try to give you like the elevator pitch uh, story is, I grew up in New Jersey. I was a paramedic uh, in New Jersey for 15 years. I was a 9-11 rescue worker in, in New York City that day. And uh, I spent, you know, all those years working in uh, doing my paramedic work primarily in uh, the uh, central Jersey and the Trenton area in Atlantic City. Obviously saw a lot of stuff, um, you know, witnessed a lot, obviously, in that many years in that field. Um, and I carried around a lot of um, unresolved uh, issues from childhood, some traumatic events that happened. Um, and, and that's the thing. Trauma is different for everybody. So oh, I actually spoke, I spoke on stage yesterday in Knoxville, Tennessee for the uh, Tennessee Suicide Prevention Network. Uh, they had a conference and they, I was the keynote yesterday and they were talking. I, one of the things I talk about is like the first trauma that I remember was when I was like, uh, I want to say I was about nine, eight, nine years old, and my dad lost his job. And I remember that. I can still remember the T-shirt I was wearing. I remember going upstairs and looking in the mirror and crying because I was scared. I didn't know what my dad losing his job meant. I didn't know, you know, I didn't understand that. And I didn't understand that that was trauma to me. And little things like that that seem insignificant can be a form of trauma in the way that our body and our brains generally tend to process it is the same regardless of the circumstance event or or whatever it was so i had you know things like that i had a youth pastor try to molest me and it was when i was young i had a friend a girl that i dated in high school die in a car accident uh very suddenly and that that's a really interesting story to tell one time but uh it, that led me to ems and i got in there and what i did what what i found when i got as a as a junior member in the, in the fire department, the local volunteer fire department, I uh, was an explorer. And I got an instant identity handed to me because once you have, you know, you get, you get to be a member of the fire department, you get a uniform, you get a badge, you get a pager and a blue light for your car. You get to be uh, important and in charge. And um, what I didn't know it was that they gave me an identity like wrapped up in a package that I carried around for a long time. And whenever I would meet somebody, in my adult life and you would you know for the first time somebody would say what do you do for a living or what do you do i would say well i'm a paramedic i didn't say that's what i do that's who i am and that's a very important distinction that people don't tend to realize in their lives when they say this i am what i do and they don't know that that's a very 
dangerous thing to do because if you turn your if your identity becomes something outside of yourself or something that that can be gone tomorrow what happens then and right and that's what ha- that is something that we I mean? that's something that we very much do in EMS where we and I, I think it exists in every industry and in every culture you know you tend to associate more with the people that you work with um, sure and we have a very we see a very unique side of humanity you know there's a very um, kind of a common thread that goes along that you know we the many broken are out here to fix the other many broken you know? <laughs> yes um, yes and it's it's an interesting thing that I don't want to say like it only applies to EMS um, and first responders but it is certainly a very big thing that tends to affect us you know we we tend to keep a very small circle, mostly because you know we're we're all broken in our own ways. Um, so yeah, and I, and I you know the first thing is you know we're uh, as we're recording this for a couple days a couple weeks away from 9/11. So you know I know it's a very um, it's always a hot topic every year and something we kind of um, avoid, especially in the tri-state area, uh, until right around September. But so you know the first thing is thank you for helping um, during that because I know that response turned into a much uh, bigger problem for a lot of people. Um, and I know recently we just we there was another uh, uh, NYPD officer who lost his life from 9/11 syndrome. Um, so it is something that, especially for us, that's very much in the background all the time. Um, so just well, don't, well, you know, yeah. well, I don't want to cut you off, but you know, I wanted to share something about 9/11 real quick. And I share this usually every time anybody asks me to tell my story. Um, 9/11, the boat that I took over from Jersey City to Manhattan that night, there was about you know. 50 to 100 first responders from all over the the local area and most everybody was getting drunk on that boat on the way over to save lives and you don't hear that on the news it's not a televised type story but I witnessed it and the message that I got and I didn't even realize that I had that I got that message so many years later is that underneath the uniform and the and the turnout gear and the and the chief bugles and the and the, the house we live in and the money we have and the, the letters after our name, we're still human beings. And human beings respond to stress, fear, anxiety, loss, grief, all that. We all respond in just a handful of the same ways to self-medicate for the moment. So it doesn't matter that you're a fireman drinking or you're you know, a dentist or a school teacher. You know, it, it creates the need to self-medicate. And there was alcohol in the boat, so that's what people did. And I would venture to guess if there was other substances, people probably would have partaken in that too. Not because they're bad people or condemnable people, but just because they're human beings. And that's a really strong message I try to get people to hear whenever I talk. Well, right. And we, again, as a, as a culture, as an industry, I think we're very, we're very good at maladjusting. Um, we, I think we tend to see the, the worst parts of humanity and you know, we have to kind of shoulder that responsibility. And then how do we deal with it? You know, we have X amount of people that we can talk about or talk to that are in the industry that kind of understand what happened, but we all kind of self-medicate in our own way. So um, before we get into, and I, I want to talk a lot about PTSD and about addiction and like that with you, because you have a lot yeah. to offer from the stories, but sure. tell, tell us a little bit about your self-medication story and how your, your previous life, I guess, kind of brought you to where you are today. Well, okay. Well, you know, working the job as a medic, obviously, like, you know, and, and using 9-11 was a very good scapegoat for uh, self-destruction. Uh, I could blame that all the time. And uh, I wound up, you know, I'd start with, you know, just drinking or whatever, getting loaded a lot of, you know, coming in hungover to work, getting, a, you know, starting an IV on myself and giving myself some D50 and some thiamine to get through the day. You know, you know, I'm sure you've heard that story before. People do that sometimes Absolutely. the day after yep. the party. 
But yeah, for me, it turned into I started, you know, screwing around with uh, benzodiazepines, uh, Xanax, Valium, Ativan, Clonopin, and then uh, painkillers, uh, Percocet, ox- you know, uh, you know, oxycodone, whatever. And what I realized with those medications is they did an okay for a physical injury. They, they pseudo help with some of the pain with, with from a physical, like an orthopedic thing. But they do a great job at covering up emotional pain because you can numb out and not feel the things you don't want to feel. And I got used to that feeling. And as I continued through my career, I was married, I had kids. The stresses of life, the regular stresses of life were mounting up. I couldn't deal with life. I couldn't deal with anything. So I ran from everything and I used, you know, self-medicated with drugs, gambling, adultery, um, spending, you name it. Um, and eventually, um, after a couple stints in rehab, um, uh, my one employer sent me to two rehabs. And on the third time I showed up high to work on the 4th of July for an overtime shift in Atlantic City, they called the third party lady in to come and drug test me on the holiday. The lady wasn't very happy. They drug tested me and they pulled me into the office and they said, I'm sorry, we, you're, we're, you know, we really, we loved having you here, but you know, we can't let you stay here. So we were going to recommend you resign, but we also have to call the state because you showed up to work intoxicated and you're a state certified paramedic. So fortunately, unfortunately or unfortunately, I called the lead, the guy in charge of the state of office of EMS on his cell phone right when I left that meeting, told him what happened. And he said, I'm going to give you a get out of jail free card. Don't ever let this happen again. I don't want to hear it again. So I figured, okay, I got out of that one. A month later, I'm working as a paramedic in Trenton, and I showed up to work high again. My boss was a part-time police officer. He knew what was going on. He pulled me in. They did the same same drug testing, the whole deal. This time, they said, you're fired. We're calling the state, and the state this time said, well, we told you, you know, we don't want to hear it again. It's a month later. Uh, We're going to... um, give you a gift and we're going to let you surrender your certification as opposed to having it revoked so it doesn't follow you for the rest of your life. So I surrendered my, my certification and going back to what I said before, my identity that I carried around for half of my life was gone that day. I did not know who I was anymore because right. at least I had something to pin my identity to even though my life was in turmoil. At this point, I had nothing. And fast forward the next year, I wound up still taking painkillers. I wound up working menial jobs, didn't make enough money, couldn't afford to buy the painkillers on the street anymore, but I was physically, chemically, emotionally, psychologically, mentally dependent on opiates to get through the day. And uh, heroin became a financial decision because it was cheaper than pills on the street. And within a couple weeks, I was shooting heroin. I overdosed, and then I overdosed a few, about a year later again on my parents' living room floor, and the medics that Narcan me were partners that I used to work with. And uh, that was the end of my heroin story, thank God, and that was two, a little over two years ago. And um, today, I'm currently creating a first responder peer support group in the Cherry Hill, New Jersey area with one of the medics that was there that saved my life that day. Uh, we're co-facilitating that group. And then about a year ago, I started the First Responder Podcast. I looked around it because I wanted, to po- I, I wanted to reach people, and I knew I couldn't have been the only one who suffered in silence for so long. Um, so I said, is there any podcasts out there for first responders who battle mental health things? And I found out that I couldn't find one anywhere that I looked. 
So I created it, and it got to be a part of the Mental Health News Radio Network immediately before it was even on the air. We've been on the air a little over a year. We have over 50 episodes. I've interviewed Hollywood producers. I've interviewed firefighters. I've interviewed, I've, I just interviewed Robin Williams' son, Zach, on my show recently, a couple weeks ago. I've interviewed Mark Cuban's brother, Brian. Um, I've connected with people all over the world. I've had, and you know, interestingly, I've had people reach out to me from places like Ireland and uh, New Zealand, Australia, and they say, man, we love what you're doing. We love your show. And then I say, well, dude, do me a favor. Just share it on social media. And then they say, I can't because I'm risking my job. If you think stigma is bad in the United States, it's even worse here. So um, it's a, there's, a, there's some pushback, um, but I just turn the volume up anytime I get pushback. Um, when I started the show last year, uh, one of my old partners that used to smoke marijuana with me in the medic unit sent me a private message and he said who the hell do you think you can help why don't you go back to the gutter and stick a needle in your arm and i said in my mind wow i guess that guy must really be hurting and that just means that i need to turn the volume up and keep doing this thing and it didn't deter me and i started doing that started my own company started doing some consulting for municipalities and uh, healthcare providers to provide programs for first responders and now i do a lot of keynote speaking and that's really my passion is speaking to people and in the last two weeks, I was in Crystal Lake, Illinois last week, and yesterday I was in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I just booked uh, something to go speak to a, a group of dispatchers in North in uh, the middle of Halifax, North Carolina in a couple months. We just booked that yesterday, and hoping to get some more, hoping to keep living this. I mean, I would have never thought that, uh, you know, my, my fiance says, who would have thought sticking a needle in your arm would have been lucrative, and uh, I never thought of it like that, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> It's definitely a unique perspective because I'm, I'm, I'm the living and breathing example of the fact that this thing, and when I say this thing, I'm talking about addiction and mental health and PTSD, especially addiction, has nothing to do with knowing better. Because I was certainly the, certainly the guy who knew better. I gave Narcan to hundreds of people. I saw it. I witnessed it. I experienced it. You would say, well, how would that guy wind up doing it? Didn't he know better? Well, yeah, but it doesn't have anything to do with that. Right, because rational thinking goes out the out out the window when you're you're going through the symptoms of PTSD, you're self-medicating, and you're taking medic taking substances that are creating receptors in your brain that demand to be filled, regardless of whatever conscious and rational thinking you can make. Well, and that's kind of so, the thing is what, you know, what we do in EMS is again, I think we we tend to project a lot of our stuff onto some of the patients that we see very unfairly. Um, but I think a lot of it too is we, we're not very good at recognizing what, you know, the signs and symptoms of PTSD or addiction might be. So do you think, to your mind, I know that you think that we handle it poorly. Um, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but I, I know generally just by the nature of having this conversation, we both think that we handle PTSD poorly in EMS. But why do you think sure. it is that we don't discuss it to the level that we should? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. I think uh, it's not sexy. It's not halogen bars and sirens and lights, so it's not, it's not some fancy tool or gadget or, you know, easy I/O or something like that. So it's not, it's not sexy to talk about. Right. Okay. It's not com and it's not comfortable to talk about. It's not, you know, we're we're taught the culture within these these career fields is suck it up. Well, and, and that's one of the things that I think is is important about the conversation that we're having about what we're doing. Um, you know, during this whole series on mental health, um, 
on this network and what you guys are doing on your network is that like it's it's okay to not be okay um but we don't handle that in our industry very well it's always like well no matter what your job was your tones will drop you're going on the next job and just kind of put it to the back of your head right just push it down and forget about it and move on and and there's so much um you know there's so much unfinished business like even from like I mean, think about it. Out of all the EMS calls you've been on in your career, how much follow-up have you ever had of patients that you saw in their worst state, and then you drop them off and you know? And then, to illustrate the picture a little bit clearer, I think, uh, maybe not clearer, that might not be the proper term I'm looking for, but to illustrate it, I'd say take somebody who works at, uh, you know, Walmart. Just a re- they're a regular dude. They have the regular stress of life. They get a flat tire on the way to work. Their kid needs braces. Grandma just died. They still got to go to work. They got to pay the bills, et cetera, et cetera. Take that person and then take the next person and say to them, hey, listen, I want you to go through the normal stresses of life. And, you know, I also want you to work as a first responder and deal with everybody's worst day and the worst things that you could possibly imagine or picture. And then I want you to just suck it up when things are bothering you. Like if we paint the picture in that frame, isn't it a ludicrous thing to even suggest that we do that to people? Well, right. And that's kind of the conversation that we've had previously where it's, we're the only industry that really does that. And I I say we, you know, police, fire, EMS, that whole triad, we're kind of the only ones that do it that way. Um, I do kind of want to move on to addiction in general, um, because this is another thing that I think kind of exists in like the, you know, the soft white underbelly of a, of first response that no one really talks about. So to your mind, and I'm not really asking you to throw out data or statistics. I'm, I don't know that they're out there, but um, how do you think that addiction happens among healthcare workers and how prevalent do you think it is among healthcare workers? Oh, I think it's extremely prevalent. And how do I think it happened? Um, I think it's just because of the humanity piece. Um, we just, we're just not that much different than the next person. We just may be doing, we, we may know more. And here's another interesting thing that I thought about recently. As EMS providers, we, are, we know limits. We know how to push limits because, because of what we do. And what I say that is like, how do I put it? Like a lot of the stuff that I would do when I was in the middle of, um, you know, getting high and going to places and buying heroin and things like that. I knew medicine well, I knew the body well, I knew how things worked that way, so I actually think it put me in a more dangerous spot because I knew how to push limits just to the brink. We're, we're adrenaline junkies, we know how, that's the, you know, we, we, sh- we, we thrive on, on, the, on the adrenaline, and I, I think that's a factor. I, I, don't, I, I don't know how to further expound on that because it's just a thought I came up with recently. But I no, think there's I, I that. Think there's a piece there, you know. I think that's entirely valid. I think when, you know, a little bit of knowledge can be dangerous. Um, you know, I think that's that's kind of important to mention. Um, yeah, it, it's. I think it's just it's a it's an important thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and some of the, just because you've you've mentioned this a couple times um, just in our yeah, talking, sure. so I, I want to bring this up because this is something again that I think that. Um, is kind of unknown amongst the populace in general. You've mentioned a couple times that moving to heroin was an economic decision. And mm-hmm. I, I, in my own research on addiction, I know that that's true um, for a lot of people. But I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit what that means and how 
because so I, backing this up a little bit, the question I think a lot of people get is like, well, you know, you didn't have to buy heroin or whatever else. Um, as far as you know, the kind of um, like broad strokes ideas that providers have. So I want to yes. I want you to talk a little bit about what you mean when you say it's an economic decision because I, I think I know what you're talking about, but I just want to kind of get that on the air a little bit. I mean, okay, absolutely. Well, it's it's really simple. Um, I was taking tons, you know, lots of opiates. I was creating all these opiate receptors by continuing to take them that the average brain doesn't have. So when I stop using, you know, if I run out, my those receptors still demand to be filled. The withdrawal starts, the cra the craving, and the craving will beat out rational thinking. So you start doing things that you're not rationally like thinking in the in the right mind. A and B. A pill on the street to buy, and I would be willing to bet you right now that to buy an oxycodone on the oxycodone on the street, like a like a Perk Thirty, to buy one today was pro will probably cost you forty bucks for a pill if you can find one. All right, so a, you know a Percocet, like a thirty milligram oxycodone, is probably about thirty or forty dollars on the street if you can find one, or you can go and buy a bag of dope, which is eight or ten dollars for a bag that'll probably give you the same, if not a better high. So, I mean, do the math. I mean, wh which it, it becomes simple economics. You know, you can't, it's hard to keep up a habit of a $40 a pill, you know, $40 a pill times how many pills I need to take a day because of the, uh, the amount of um, tolerance that I've, I've also got for the opiates. Or you buy the bag and you, you start doing things you wouldn't necessarily do. And, and, and let's address something because we, before we went on the, uh, on the air here, you, you mentioned it and I'd like to address it. The, uh, when people say, oh, well, they chose that. You're right. They did choose that. Everything is a choice and I agree with that. However, why don't we play this out? The person that is, is now calling 911 in the middle of the night because it's their fifth heart attack because they have never taken the advice of the doctors after the previous stents and bypass surgeries. So now they still smoke like a chimney and eat the bad foods and are sedentary. Now we're getting called out again for the, their fifth heart attack. They need to go to the cath lab. Does the doctor say, oh, well, we're not going to treat that, or we're going to tell you, um, try coming, see if you can get a bed next week, because this was based on your choices. Um, I'm so happy that you mentioned that because that's something that I've been saying for years. Um, we, it's, it's, and I think the reason people look at it that way is kind of it's an acute choice, I think, versus looking at a chronic choice. Like we don't say, well, you're not going to get chemotherapy for your lung cancer because you smoked for 35 years because we don't see that 35-year smoking pattern. That, that's correct. You know, if, okay. but, and, yeah, and but to, you're, you're absolutely to, right. It, it is the only – addiction is the, and overdoses specifically are the only things that we treat as a choice while ignoring the rest of the other choices that people make. It's treated as a moral failing as, you know, that you're a bad person or a weak person or a dumb person or something. But, it's the only, but, but that's also, substance abuse is the only thing that we talk about for a moral failing. We don't really do that with cigarette smokers. We don't really do it with alcoholics. Or, or food or whatever. And right. that's, I mean, it's, you just said it, it's the acute effect. If you walked into McDonald's today for the first time that you've ever been in there and the guy in front of you orders a, a big, if, if you saw the guy eating the Big Mac and he dropped out of a heart attack from the, the, the that acute Big Mac heart attack, more than likely you wouldn't go, you probably wouldn't follow in his footsteps. But it's the cumulative effect of the Big Mac every day, every week, every month, every year that kills you. And because we're not seeing the direct acute effect of that choice, you're right, it's, it's, it's treated differently.
Yeah, and it's it's always impressive because I, you know, you if you're going to view it to me, like if you're going to view the addiction thing as a choice, we chose to get into healthcare. You know, our our patients don't choose us, but we chose to help them. Uh, right. Know? So it was always very interesting to me that that's um, that's kind of a mindset that people have. So it, we know kind of where the stigma, I guess, sort of originates. Um, I don't know if there's a particular uh, cure for it, but to your mind, what do you think that we can do as providers, whether it's, you know, doing, you know, podcasts or networks or whatever else, what is it that you think that we can do to help reduce or change the stigma that providers have toward people with PTSD and addiction problems? Well, we need to, I think having meetings with them and, you know, not to toot my own horn or nothing, but to bring people like myself in there that can speak to being on both sides of the stretcher, to speak to being... And, you know, to being the guy who, when we're responding to a, dis, a dispatch for the third overdose of the night, my partner's complaining because he's missing his meal again, and he's saying, I can't stand saving these junkies. I The message I get very clear from that is, oh, my God, I can't tell him the struggle I'm going through, because I just stole a bottle of Vicodin from that last patient's house we were in a few minutes ago. But I can't talk about what's happening because this guy already has that judgment on those junkies, you know. So let's so, let's dovetail over that real quick, and we'll we'll get back to your original point. Why is it? Sure. To, why do you think that is so difficult to discuss in general? Is it that there is that stigma out there, or what? What do you what do you honestly think that is the reason that we don't talk about it as providers all that much? Well, I think it's a lack of education. Uh, it's just we don't talk about it. It's not comfortable. And it really just comes back to the culture. And I think the other part that is even even more poignant, maybe, and it's under the surface, is I think most, most, or a good, a good majority, okay, of first responders get into these fields because of um, subconsciously they needed a rescuer when they were going through something that they were going through when they were kids or something like that. I knew I didn't find that out till 20 years later, but that's why I became a rescuer because nobody rescued me from the stuff I dealt with. Right. So I think saying that means if that's the case, then you really got to start broaching some really, really uncomfortable things and digging up wounds and scars that people don't want to, they don't want to, they don't want any, they don't want out in the open. But the ironic part is I've learned that the more you speak your truth and the more vulnerable you allow yourself to become, the pain of that truth actually dies in the light of the exposure of it. Yeah. And that's, that's really poignant. I think that, and again, like that's the reason that we're both, you know, having these conversations is to try and get out in the open a little bit more. So I guess at a ground level, what I want to ask is, do you think the way, if we're going to solve this problem, right, and obviously it's a huge undertaking, do we start at the education level when, say, someone is in EMT or medic class, or do you do it when just having conversations with your partner one by one, or is it kind of a combination of all of, all of those things? Well, I think it's definitely a combination. I think, I mean, majorly in the EMT training, we spend hundreds of hours pounding BSI and substance isolation, <laughs> BSI and scene safety into people's brains, you know, we, we pound that in and that's important, right. but do we ever address mental wellness or, or um, fit for duty mentally, psychologically, emotionally? It's never talked about. It's right. not and, even on the radar. And it's, it's especially not for, I don't, I personally don't think that we teach 
the psychology or the physiology of overdoses enough, but I also know that we don't teach, you know, am I okay at all? No, it's just not, it's not allowed to be taught. It's just not part of it. So there's the revamping of that. And then I believe the, the, the key to starting to open the conversations is to actually, again, going back to having people come in and talk to organizations and, and departments about these topics and creating peer support groups, whether they be just local for any first responder, like a more of a general type thing or within departments. Um, I can give you an example. I was up in Connecticut back in the spring and I met with a bunch of guys from the large fire department up there. And the one guy there went to treatment for PTSD and alcoholism, came back from being away and he wanted to start something in his firehouse. So he started a peer support group. And at first it was ridiculed and they called it, Oh, the, the crybaby meeting and all that. Like the guys made fun of it, but people start, you know, this guy kept doing it. And you know, three years later or two or three years later, the guys that ridiculed it in the beginning are the guys that are the biggest supporters of it now. When, and that's a that's actually there's a, this old like apocryphal story that goes back to a firehouse and a chief, you know, starting a, um, an emotional support group, and it was you know the chief kind of making fun of every of the group itself, going into the support session, crying to his therapist, and then coming out and saying that it was you know kind of a nonsense therapy session. So I think that. That is something that exists a lot, and the change is hard. So when you have, you know, a new program, I think the first thing that people will do is ridicule it, and then over time it gets more and more accepted. Well, you just actually just basically described one of my favorite quotes from an 1800s philosopher named Arthur Schopenhauer. This man said that all great ideas and new concepts go through three stages. First, they're ridiculed. The next stage is that they're dramatically opposed and eventually they serve as self-evident. Right, they were always there the, the entire time. Yeah, so I think we're kind of in the in the in-between stages, um, and it's getting there, the conversation's getting more, um, and I know, I believe it's my responsibility when people say, oh man, it's so courageous of you to tell your story, and I appreciate that, I, I don't take that lightly, but I believe it's just my responsibility. The fact that I was allowed to stay alive, I was fortunate to stay alive, makes me responsible to talk about it because, you know, to be, there's, there's, there's people struggling. There's EMS providers working somewhere right now that are, you know, stealing the wasted morphine or they're um, stealing pills from grandma's medicine cabinet. And I did those things. And again, not proud, not condoning, but I can talk about it very freely because I'm not getting on an ambulance again as a, as a provider. Right. Somebody who's still doing it can't talk about it like that. So I get to give a voice to that person. And I think that's why I was, that's one of the reasons I was allowed to stay alive for, through all this. So, and we're going to link, we're going to link uh, your website and all that uh, in our show notes. But if someone's listening right now and is looking for help, uh, what are a couple of resources they can go to right now as you're listening to this? Well, I would definitely recommend if you look, want to talk to me, um, you could uh, the best uh, hub to find me, I guess, would be rescuedconsulting.com for booking or consultation or coaching, uh, mentorship, something like that. Um, my web or my podcast is called Rescue the Rescuer. We just got on Spotify last week. 
we're on uh, Amazon Alexa. If you have an Apple iPhone, you could just hit your Siri button and ask to play Rescue the Rescuer podcast. It'll pop right up. Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher. Uh, we're on all those places where you can find um, podcasts. And I also, my show has a sponsor called Stepstone Connect, which is out of Salt Lake City. And they are a telehealth company. So and specifically for first responders, they do counseling. And they do it from the comfort of wherever you are. As long as you have an internet connection, you can video Skype your therapist wherever you are. Not even have to leave your house. And the first consultation is free. They work on sliding scale with insurance after that. And all they want to do is help people. So I would highly recommend them as well. Great. That's terrific. So we'll, have, we'll link all those in the show notes. Um, Steve, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, thanks for telling your story and, uh, we'll talk again soon. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. Anytime I could ever be of assistance, I'm just a phone call away. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Steve Kavalkovich for coming onto the show and talking to me for a little bit. These are issues that we do not talk about enough in EMS or in any type of healthcare or these mental health issues. Certainly not the last conversation we're going to be having on these topics. We're all really excited to know what you think. Let us know at overrunproductions at gmail.com. Talk to us on Facebook, Instagram, or on Twitter. Uh, over on EMS on Twitter, over on Productions, everywhere else. Subscribe, like, comment. We want to know what you guys think. And uh, from here, my name is Ed Bowder for The Overrun, and we'll talk to you next time.